Welcome to Friday's Child the Podcast, formerly known as Life School ME. When I started Life School back in June 2019, my vision for where I wanted to take the podcast and how it would grow was not 100% clear. I knew I wanted to interview inspiring women and share their stories, but there was no grand plan. And that's okay. I'm a firm believer in starting before you're ready. But after falling pregnant with my beautiful daughter Mabia and deciding to focus on the world of bumps and babies for series two, I discovered a new passion for all things related to pregnancy and birth. The things I learned about the female body and birth during my pregnancy journey have changed me forever and ignited a newfound passion and love for this subject matter. So Life School has been reborn as Friday's Child and during this series I will be talking to first-time mums, childbirth educators and industry experts on all things motherhood. Whether you're newly pregnant, a first-time mum, or maybe you just want to find out more about the world of babies and motherhood, I hope you enjoy listening to my wonderful guests and that hopefully you can take away some helpful information and insights. Now let's get on with the show. My guest today is Dubai-based paediatric dietitian Jordana Vensk. Jordana specialises in infant diet and nutrition, maternal nutrition and pre and postnatal support. Jordana is also a breastfeeding counsellor and hypnobirthing instructor. In this episode, I speak to Jordana about a very hot topic and something that I'm currently going through right now with my six-month-old baby, and that's the wonderful world of weaning. So for any mums out there about to start their weaning journey, this one's for you. Jordana is a fountain of knowledge, and I personally learned so much from our conversation. So without further ado, here's my chat with the lovely Jordana. Enjoy! Jordana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, Peter. Thank you for giving me your time. And um, you look like you're in a very zen corner of your home, I have to say. (laughs) I'm actually just sitting at my dining room table. My office upstairs, the Wi-Fi is not working there for some reason. So I've moved downstairs and I'm hoping that my daughter doesn't come back from the swimming pool. So I've sent her out. (laughs) Well, I'm hoping mine doesn't wake up. So hopefully we'll have a smooth run. Yeah. <laughs> so Jordana, can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and the different ways in which you help pregnant women, but also then beyond that, so um, families sure. and babies? Sure. So I am a dietitian and I qualified as a dietitian now 14, 14 years ago. So I've been working as a dietitian and I actually fell into working with pregnant women and children, particularly babies. When I first finished graduated from university, I got placed at a pediatric hospital and a maternity hospital. And that's really where my passion grew into helping women during their birthing time. Kind of in South Africa, you're going to a government hospital. They really are in and out there. The ladies get six hours after they've given birth to get out of the hospital essentially so just being part of that whole process helping them with breastfeeding to really try to get it established as fast as we can because we know that then they're kind of out and out into the world and into the system and then in terms of with the children with the babies I got placed with the neonatal unit so working a lot with the um with the premature babies and we had quite a big kangaroo mother care unit there so helping moms there with their premature babies, establishing breastfeeding. And so that's really where my passion grew. And from there, I opened up my own clinic in South Africa, 
and worked there for around about, I'd say, what's it, nine years or so? No, about eight years or so. And then being in Dubai now for, this will be my sixth year here, and I've just kind of always stayed in that pediatric and maternal space. So here I work primarily, I really like dealing with pediatrics, and then with that prenatal and moving now more towards that postnatal phase as well, because I think a lot of women, we're not getting the kind of aftercare that, that we need a lot of the time. So that's really where I am in that space. I'm a hypnobirthing instructor as well, so I teach that. Um, but So that's really where I am and what I can do and what I can offer. Yeah, this keeps coming up time and time again, the postnatal care, because yeah. there's a lot of information out there to prepare you for birth um, exactly. and help you during your pregnancy. And that really is your main focus when you're pregnant. Yeah, totally. It's very hard to think, if it's your first baby, it's very hard to think past the point of what's actually going to happen once you've had the baby. Um, you're just exactly so consumed, aren't you, by this big event. And then totally. you have your baby and that's when it can be a little bit tricky to know where to turn to, especially here when we have all the resources, but it's very much private. You need to set it up for yourself. Yeah, exactly. So that's really, and I think also being here, we don't necessarily have that family around. We, we don't have that ingrained support system and a lot of, a lot of the people that we're interacting with are sitting in the exact same boat as, as we are. So we're all kind of trying to help each other out, but not always quite a certain way to help each other out as such. So it's really a special time that we, that we need to start to kind of nurture women and look after women. And I mean, I've just been currently reading um, the fourth trimester book and things, and you just kind of look at it and you go, we... We put so much sacrifice into the baby, but then we aren't really willing to sacrifice anything for ourselves. And at the end of the day, the mother is the core of the family. And yes, the dad is there and is part of it. But if the mother breaks down, potentially everything is going to crumble around her. So that's where that space is so important. It is. And I, I did hypnobirthing. So I learned about the fourth trimester. Yeah. But I think if you haven't done hypnobirthing, you might not have heard of that, this term before. Um, yeah. And people are sort of expected in this society now to just bounce back. And that's yeah. not just like with your body, just in general. Like, oh, so you've had the baby, so, you know, back to work. And I think it's 45 days you get here as staff. Yeah. I mean, I look back to what I was like days, at 45 yeah. days. There is no way I would have been ready to, to go back no. into a corporate environment. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was very blessed in my situation. I was working for a clinic at the time and, We'd actually stop my stop my services two weeks before my due date, just in case you know we didn't want to be cancelling appointments and things. And then my daughter only ended up coming two weeks later, so just before my forty second week. So if I had had to have that forty five days, I would have gone back to work when she was like two, just over two weeks old or so. So, I mean, that is just I I wouldn't have yeah. been able to cope, and then. When I did actually go back to work, I ended up having two months then. And I still remember having the conversation the day before I got my schedule sent to me. And I phoned the clinic manager and I said, I, I just can't come. I can't come. And she said, well, what's, what's the issue? And I said, I can't leave her. I don't know what to do. And she literally, they said to me, well, why didn't you just bring her? And we'll see how it goes. And I was so blessed. And I was 
took, I was lucky enough and I was able to take my daughter with me to work for the next year and a half of her life. So That's for me, amazing. it was amazing what the opportunity that I was offered. And it was really just managed that when I had clients, I would then my daughter would be with the nurses or with some of the reception staff. And then if she needed a feed, they'd quickly just bring her into me and space up my clients. But it worked. And it was just, I still say to say to the doctor who owned that clinic, I, I still work with him now. And I still say, you gave me the best opportunity that I could ever have. But that is most amazing. women don't get that. No, they don't. And, yeah. you know, I... I'm really lucky because I, I freelance at the moment and I have that flexibility, mm. but even starting with one freelance client when my daughter was around three, yeah. three and a half months, I was really nervous. I was like, yeah. I don't know if I can do this. And it's a tiny <laughs> scope of work, but I literally don't know if I can manage this. And I felt so overwhelmed and anxious. And look, not every mother feels like that. Some women are different. Mm. Some women are desperate to get back to work and that's yeah. okay as well. But I think mm. anyone that is, listening to this and is pregnant or has just had a baby, please look into the fourth trimester because there's real, yeah. there's, there's a real um, like science behind it. Like there's a reason why you Absolutely. need to, to really like pace yourself during those first three months. Yeah. There's a Absolutely. lot going on, isn't there? It's a huge amount going on. I mean, hormonally, physically, everything. There's a lot going on within yeah. that time so much and then you get mm. through that and then I think you feel quite confident for a little while and you've got the hang of breastfeeding or bottle feeding or both and then yeah. comes weaning weaning now yes. you are you are a, a baby nutritionist is that the right um yes yeah, so I'm a pediatric dietitian yeah that's the, that's the correct term Sorry, I still have <laughs> yeah. a bit of a baby brain um and as you'll soon find out through this chat I am far from a weaning expert so let's talk weaning when how yeah. baby led spoon fed where do we begin okay so it's such a heated question and it's very very confusing for moms as to or for parents as to what what to do which way there's kind of such a push towards you should be doing a baby led you should be doing a puree which way to turn to when do we start doing it so to start off with, when we're looking at kind of the recommendations as to when to start, WHO is recommending that we're looking at six months. And then when we're looking at the new kind of allergy guidelines, it's more towards that four-month mark. And what we need to look at really is specific children. So if I'm a high-risk child, so I'm more likely to develop a food allergy, then we would be looking more towards that four-month mark. But otherwise, we're really aiming to get closer to that six-month mark. And it's really about looking at, is your child ready? So what I deal with a lot of is parents coming and saying, my child is too hungry, they're not getting enough food, my child isn't gaining enough weight, my child isn't sleeping, so we have to start solids. And fundamentally, what we have to first figure out is that starting solids is not going to help with any of those issues. I can tell you right from the get-go, initially, it's not going to help your baby sleep. It's not going to help them grow. It's really not going to be helping. What it can do is it can actually interfere with how they respond to food later on in life. So for me, it's all about looking at the big picture, not just about the here and now. We're wanting our children to develop a good, healthy relationship with food long term. So when they're adults, to still have a healthy relationship with food. We're wanting their digestive systems to stay healthy, that gut flora to be remaining healthy. We don't want to be putting too much pressure on it and stop them too early unnecessarily. So 
I try to look at that bigger picture and really follow your child's readiness signs. And they indicate to us when they're ready to start solids. One of the first things is, is that, am I actually able to sit up properly? So we don't need them to be sitting unassisted. We just need them to be able to hold themselves up. And it's got a lot to do with what concentration am I having to use to eat or to help myself balance? Am I putting myself at an increased risk of choking, for example? There's also looking at things like, is their tongue thrust reflex gone? So it's all about, again, creating that environment for your child. If they've still got their tongue thrust reflex, which is that reflex of them always sticking their tongue out, that's there actually to protect their airway from anything coming in and them swallowing or taking anything in. If it's still there when we're trying to feed them, we're just going to end up frustrating our children and also frustrating ourselves because we're going, why won't you eat? And they're going, why are you making me eat? I'm not ready for this. And so we just create a battle of wills. And so straight away, that environment around feeding isn't a nice one. And we're really trying to create a happy space for our children to then grow into kind of those teenagers and adults which are going to be happy around feeding. Um, so what are, you mentioned the, um, the sitting up. Are there mm -hmm. other really key signs that we can look out for so that we feel, okay, I think I might be, I might be ready to start now. Um, yeah. Because like you said, it, it's different for different babies. So it might not, it might happen mm -hmm. before the six month mark for your baby or exactly. it might happen after. Yeah, so we're looking at that sitting up with some assistance. So really to measure this, put your baby on a, play, on a soft mat on the floor, seat them, and take your hands off of them. If they can hold themselves up for around three seconds, that's one of the signs being met. Has their tongue thrust reflex gone? So then if we put pressure on their lower lip, if they're starting to push against your finger with their tongue, that reflex is still there. So that's an indication that I'm not yet ready. So we're wanting that to be gone. Another thing is looking at their neck control. So are their necks still kind of flopping down or are they able to follow something around in a movement? So if anybody's kind of seeing this, am I able to move my head like that or in that 360? So top right corner, top left corner, bottom left, bottom right. That's going to show me that I can actually have that airway clear. And I always say to parents when they come and they say, well, why should my child have that neck control? I always say, well, drop your neck down and try to swallow. Is it easy? It's not really that easy to do. So we're just starting them off on that kind of back foot. Then the last two signs kind of go together. So are they grabbing stuff? Are they actually trying to reach for things and pick things up? We want them to be eating and ideally by themselves. So we need them to be able to pick things up. And then the last one, which is the reason why most parents initially come is they say, my child's showing an interest in eating. They're just following what I'm doing. It's not as easy as that. It's really quite complicated to see if they're showing an interest because they will start to show an interest because they're at that age of I'm, I'm interacting a little bit more now with stuff. It's more are they really starting to see the relationship of what's happening when you're eating. So they're noticing that food is going in your mouth. They're starting to mimic you trying to break down that food. So you'll see their mouth opening and closing. And then once all of those signs are met, then we generally will say, now they're ready to start swallows. But like I said, sometimes with our allergenic babies or those that are more at risk, we'll start them earlier regardless of those signs because for them, avoiding that allergy is actually better long term. Oh, Jordana, I have so many questions. <laughs> 
I can talk for ages about this. So you so, can stop me. <laughs> so I, that was all so helpful. So thank you. Because I think that's the first, that's where the first sort of, for me anyway, confusion started because depending on where you come from as well, um, yeah. weaning can, um, you can have very strong opinions on weaning depending on where you're from, your culture, your background. So in this part of the world, it's very common to start weaning at four months. Yeah. Because yeah. From, from what I've heard, they feel in this part of the world that if you don't start that uh, at four months, your baby will be fussy. Yeah. So, and I've heard this time and time again. So when my baby was around four months, my doctor said, you should start weaning her now. And I just thought, I nodded politely. I thought, there's no way I'm weaning my... I mean, she is, she is showing yeah. none of the signs. There is no way my baby is ready for food. And yeah. we didn't start until she was almost six months. She started showing all the signs and, and, and we, mm. we started. So it can be very difficult when you've got lots of people, including doctors, telling you to start weaning yeah. at four months. And... I think for anyone listening, please look for all those signs you just said and make the, the right decision for your baby. Don't feel under pressure. Yeah, because that pressure that parents also feel really can impact your child's ability to eat as well. So remember that everything about our relationship with our babies is actually all an energy balance. And you'll notice this from when they're really little. If we're stressing because they won't calm down, they don't calm down and then the other parent comes in and takes them and whisks them away and all of a sudden the child is asleep and you're kind of going, why? What did you do? And they didn't do anything. They just, they were calmer at that point in time. And it's exactly the same with eating. If we're kind of flustered and going, well, I'm doing this, but I don't feel right about doing it, that energy is going to go into your child and your child's going to pick up and go, there's something here that I'm not picking up from my mom or my dad that this is safe for me to do. And so they're going to be a little bit mm. more kind of hesitant and then we'll automatically assume, oh, they're fussy, we need to encourage them, we need to trick them, we need to do all of these things. And you end up down the cycle of just trying to balance mealtimes when mealtimes shouldn't be that stressful. They should be a really fun time. And the, the other thing that, that I have struggled with and continue to struggle with, you know, my baby is just only over six months, so I'm still very in in the early days of weaning, is yeah. I've read a lot of conflicting messages. Some people say you should start off with veggies, give them the same veggies for the first couple of days, then introduce a new uh, veggie or f and then yeah. go on to fruit. Some places mm -hmm. say mix it up, try something new every day. So it's really confusing, especially for a mum yeah. like me who hates cooking I don't I'm a big foodie I love eating but I have no interest in preparing food in making cooking. food and I've had to really get my head around that as well and of course in the yeah. early days you can't really call it cooking can you but <laughs> it's still something that you're yeah. having to incorporate into your day so I know that this will be your personal opinion um mm -hmm. but how do we start weaning so we used to. So traditionally, the way that I qualified, we used to say that you should be on one food for three days to test our allergenic, to test if your children are allergic to these foods. But we've actually seen now that us being too strict has led to an increase in the amount of allergies, food allergies that's kind of being diagnosed now. So what we really recommend now is that you're starting off with going more with your savory bitter flavors. 
And the reason why we're recommending more of these flavors is that our children are born with a preference to sweet things. And they've got this preference for sweet things because genetically our first food is sweeter. Breast milk is sweet. It's based on lactose, which is a sugar. Formula mimics breast milk, so it's also going to be sweet. And so we've got this preference for sweet things. And now for the first four to six months of our lives, we've only been triggering that taste bud. So if we continue just to focus on these sweet taste buds, the other taste buds get a little bit forgotten about. And so we ultimately have to kind of relearn, reteach them what they need to be doing. Whereas if we straight off the bat, just spin it around and we go, actually, we're going to start off with foods being more bitter, more savory. And we'll explore as much variety there. And then we'll bring in the sweet foods like the fruits or the, the sweeter carbohydrates or but natural carrots or sweet potato. Then we start to waken up the palate and we go, right, you need to be working a little bit harder now. And the other thing is with our flavors is trying to keep them as close to your family flavors as much as possible. So the first time your baby got introduced to flavor was actually in your womb. So at around 18 weeks, your baby started swallowing amniotic fluid, which was flavored by whatever mom was eating. So we, your baby's starting already to learn, oh, this is what will be expected of me later on. Then if we're breastfeeding, again, flavoring our milk. So slight changes that we wouldn't necessarily be able to pick up, but our babies can. And then when we get to solids, if we go too bland again, we change the palate for our baby which was there, we've changed it now to bland, and then we have to reteach them about bringing in these flavors. So it's about offering those more bitter things and then putting spices in, spices and herbs and lemon and garlic and ginger, whatever you traditionally use in your cooking, and then we move more onto those sweeter things. But it's about trying something once and then moving on. We don't need to be doing it for three days in a row. It's, today I'm trying avo, tomorrow I'm trying broccoli, the following day I'm trying cauliflower and then bringing in a food that you've already tried within a seven-day period so that your baby remembers it and ultimately what's happening is they're developing a pathway within their senses as to how to process food and then that's what makes them less likely to be picky eaters when they're toddlers or into childhood. And so things like um, you mentioned ginger there, garlic, can you be adding that in? when in the, in, even in the beginning so for the first two weeks or so when what i say is what i recommend is for your first two weeks we're just doing first taste so it's things individually just a few flavors that they're being offered but there on out is where we're starting to put more of our proteins in we're putting in more of our carbohydrates then put your flavor in so really six and a half months or so get going on your flavors and put in your spices and your herbs it's really about putting in as much as you can and exposing them that they'll be better eaters. This is where it continues to get confusing because I have various different apps and cookbooks and a lot of them say, um, you know, add some peanut butter in, um, mm. you know, um, and various different other things, which... I'm like, oh, okay, is that safe for my baby? And I actually yeah. asked my doctor at her six-month vaccinations, you know, when it comes to peanut butter, is it just, you know, your, your normal peanut butter? And he's like, under no circumstances give your baby peanut butter until they're a year old. And I'm like, um, okay. It's in like literally every book and app I have. So it's yeah. so confusing for us new mums. Yeah. Okay, so that's old research. And this is where kind of, 
I've got a great relationship with a lot of pediatricians who are kind of forward thinking, but a lot of pediatricians or doctors, when we actually look at their training, they don't do a lot of nutritional training. They're very limited as to what they're doing. And so they're not necessarily always keeping up to date. Our guidelines changed for our allergy introduction. When I qualified, when I studied, absolutely. That was 14, 15 years ago. Absolutely, we would avoid all allergens for the first year. But now it's about bringing them in as soon as possible. So when I'm working with a parent, actually, I always start off by introducing egg first as my allergen and the whole egg. Then I do peanuts. And then we start to work through the chain of the other more common allergenic foods. So we have what we call the top eight or the top nine here in the Middle East. So that's eggs. It is eggs, peanuts, nuts, your cow's milk protein, your soy, your wheat, your seafood or your fish. And then also it's sesame seeds here. So those are our group of allergenic foods. We start off with eggs first, then we move on to peanuts, like I said, and then we go through the range. But with these allergenic foods, we do those for three days in a row and we do them on a dose response. So for example, I'm starting off with eggs. I make sure that it's super well cooked because then I'm breaking down the protein, which potentially my child could be allergic to. And on day one, I'm literally offering them a quarter of a teaspoon. So it's a teeny tiny amount. If there's no reaction on day two, I offer them half a teaspoon. No reaction on day three, I go into the full dose. And then I'll wait two to three days, and then I would try another allergen. So then I would bring in that peanut butter, for example. We can see now that the more we delay it, the more likely your child is going to be developing an mm. allergen to it. And those guidelines changed, those new guidelines changed in 2019. So they are relatively new guidelines. It's a new, it's a relatively new recommendation, but it is something that really does need to be done and that get those allergens into our babies. But it's something that I face on a daily basis of parents saying, but we can't do that, or with eggs, we should only be doing the white or the yolk or which way. And it's we've really become a little bit more relaxed in how we're doing it but we've noticed that the incidence is dropping mm. it's so fascinating and with baby led weaning you know mm -hmm. I look at my little girl and I'm spoon feeding her purees and I did try something a little bit chunkier the other day because mm. I from what I've read you know you build up the consistency and it did not go down well and I was like okay yeah. She's clearly not ready. And some of these books are telling me to give her on the side a little piece of, you know, really softly steamed um, broccoli or courgette or whatever it may be. Yeah. And I just feel like if I hand her that and she rams it down her throat and chokes, we're in big trouble because yeah. I'm home alone. Um, and you must hear that from mums all the time, the fear of all choking. The so therefore I'm not giving her any finger food just yet because I just don't feel like yeah. A, she's ready and B, I'm ready. So I'm just spoon feeding her the puree. Um, and then I look at other mums and I'm like, oh, their baby's eating toast and they're the same age. So how do you know that your baby is ready to actually hold a piece of food and eat it? Like are there telltale signs that indicate that they're ready? Okay. So you said it actually very clearly. You said she's not ready and I'm not ready. Hey, if you're not ready, don't do it. She's going to pick up on your anxiety and she's going to go straight away. This isn't right for me to do. I'm not sure what to do here. So it's really about finding that balance as to where you are feeling and then we allow them. 
there aren't many telltale signs. When we look at the difference between choking of purees and whole foods and giving them kind of those more finger foods, there's no difference in the risk of choking once I'm over six months of age. Younger than six months, when we're offering whole foods to babies, there is an increased risk of choking to purees. It's really now about following her, following her lead. But what I would recommend is that you still offer something whole on the side. If she's interested in it, then let her be. What she more than likely will do is she'll pick it up, she'll squish it in her hands, she might kind of throw it on the floor, and that's it. That in itself has been a massive developmental skill that she's learning to do. She's starting to integrate some of that processing. And to take away an element of the fear is understanding what texture should that food be. So essentially, when we're looking at doing a, a whole food offer to our babies, is that we're wanting the food to be the size of your finger, the length of your finger, the thickness of one or two fingers, so like that size, okay? And then it needs to pass what we would call the mash test. So if you had to squeeze that food between your finger, your forefinger and your thumb, it needs to become a puree. That's when we know that it's soft enough that it is now safe for them to be eating, okay? But for me, it's not you have to be baby-led, you have to be purees, which is, I certainly find in the UAE in particular, the baby-led wieners tend to be quite hell-bent on if you've ever offered your child anything with a spoon, you cannot say that you're baby-led weaning. And there's a lot, it's much like that debate of kind of formula over breastfeeding. It's mm, the baby-led over purees, which is better and you're yeah. doing your disservice to your baby and and things where it's for me it's quite a I call it kind of baby-led feeding so we're able to do this response of letting our babies be in charge and guide the process but we can do it with purees or with whole foods it's just that with a puree we're still wanting to ensure that they are getting some whole foods because by around the age of eight to nine months they should all at that age be eating most of their food whole foods but certainly follow her signs and they will indicate to you. They'll spit it out, not show an interest in that whole food if they're not ready for it yet. And then, you know what, leave it for a few days. It doesn't matter. I generally would be saying offer a little bit of puree and be offering a whole food at the same meal and see how it goes. Just take it from there and go, go slowly according um to also how you're feeling. And so you mentioned that around eight or nine months, that's when your baby shouldn't really be on purees anymore. It should be yeah. more, you know, pastas and, you know, whole foods, basically. So then they should be eating pretty much family food. So what the family is eating. So again, you've got to relook at how you as a family are eating. I've had some people kind of go, well, Delivery doesn't really do baby-friendly food. Well, this I is the situation I'm well. in. Yeah, this is our problem. My baby can't eat what we eat because we eat like yeah. stupid, You know, we order every night. We, I mean, I'm trying to cook more now, but it's very yeah. hit and miss. So I think that's where it's really hard for mothers like me who just are not in the kitchen. Yeah. I'm suddenly having this big sort of like realisation where I'm like, oh my God, like I have to now become a cook basically which yeah. is not a natural thing for me <laughs> yes so it's not about becoming a cook it's just about trying to do a little bit more 
kind of whole foods, and when I say whole foods, trying to do a little bit more real food. It doesn't need to be complicated meals. It really doesn't need to be that we're making our children muffins and this, that, and the next thing, and these types of spinach pancakes with cheese and kind of going into these elaborate things. Not at all. It's about even if you can't manage it for every meal, try and make it that one meal in a day when your child is onto three meals is that that is a family meal that's being prepped and that is being eaten together. Because ultimately what's going to be happening is that she's watching what you are doing. And none of us want our children to be that person that is only wanting to eat burgers and pizzas and pastas, for example. We're yeah. wanting our children to be eating vegetables and fruits. But if our children aren't seeing us eat vegetables, how are they meant to learn that that's actually safe for me to be eating? So it goes also back to then that fussy eating space of I see people now whose kids are two, three years old and they say, well, they're not, they're fussy eaters, they don't want to eat vegetables. And then when I ask the parents, well, what are you eating? Well, we're getting Deliveroo. Okay, well, how do you expect them to be eating that vegetable? They don't know what vegetables are. Remember uh. that everything our children do they've learned because we've showed them what to do so yeah it's it's sort of like you have to hold changes. a mirror up to yourself yes and you know what am i doing and exactly it's a real it's one of the things i'm struggling with the most actually up until this point every sort of hurdle we've got to i'm like okay right yeah we figured out the breastfeeding we're figuring out the sleep yeah. this weaning thing is like <laughs> I now have to eat better. I have to pray. Like, it's it's holding a mirror up to myself. And I think that's what I'm struggling with the most. She's fine. Yeah. She's enjoying it. You know, she's mm. okay. What are the, some of the um, finger foods that you would recommend? So if you are going to do a combination like I will be, mm. so, you know, your purees and your um, finger yeah. foods, what are some of the, the easiest ones, would you say, to introduce? So doing things like avocado is always my prime my first thing to be kind of looking at for finger foods especially for nervous parents because it's soft in any case so you're literally just cutting a slither of that avocado and giving them that finger basically and um, something like a broccoli uh, either a floret or tender stems you know the baby broccolis the long tender mm, stems yeah cooking that steaming that or even putting it into the oven that is quite a nice finger food for them to be eating Something that's really easy and super nutritious for them once I've tried eggs, making an omelet. You can literally just make a two egg omelet as is and then cutting that into strips. That would be the length of your mm. finger and two fingers width. That would be a really easy finger food. Something like um, you mentioned toast earlier. We don't want to make it hard toast, mm. but they shouldn't also be having soft bread at this point in time. So just slightly toasted, cut into fingers, putting on some cream cheese onto that. If they've had any nut butters, putting some nut butter on, that would be a really easy finger food. Or if we're looking at that kind of protein section, making a meatball. That's an easy way for us to be offering them mm. a finger food. Any kind of ball, you're looking for really kind of the size of a golf ball. That makes it easier for them to grab. And if they do break it apart, the pieces aren't too fine. They'll break off into still quite big chunks that they're able to pick up and manage and figure out what to do, what to do with. Um, fish, salmon, any kind of fish, super easy to flake. So you can just literally take salmon, squeeze of lemon juice, pop it in the oven for 20 minutes, 
take it out, you flake off some pieces, and there you go. A finger food, but then at the same time, a meal for you. Yeah, okay, amazing. And before we move on, you also um, mentioned about once they're on three meals a day. So at what point should our babies be on two meals? Because right now we're very much sort of, I'll offer her like either a breakfast and a dinner or a lunch and a dinner. And then I just see how she's feeling that day. So again, just kind of following her lead, but at what age should they really be having those three set meals a day? So you'll get to those three meals anywhere between seven to seven and a half months, I'd say. It's following their lead. With my daughter, I only really started to get to her three meals per day at around seven and a half months, um, where we were kind of going, okay, here's your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner. Um, it's not a time to be rushing. Those first, essentially, those first two months of you starting solids is also a lot more about them playing, exploring, feeling, touching, smelling, seeing, than them actually eating the food. Mm. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've touched on the allergens, um, but could you just let us know? So, for example, She's now six and a half months. So if mm-hmm. I want to start with egg, you said eggs, the right one to start with. Yeah. You mentioned an omelet. How do I, do I make a whole omelet and then just give her like a tiny bit? How do I, let's say tomorrow I'm going to introduce egg for the first time. Yeah. How do, explain to a complete novice how to go about this. Okay. <laughs> no pads so. at the ready, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are doing more purees, You can literally be taking a boiled egg. Once it's hard boiled, cut it into four and then take a quarter out of it, gnash it, and then add it into whatever puree you're giving her. So let's say that you're giving her broccoli and she's tried broccoli before. You'd be mixing that egg through that. And that's the way that you'd be giving her her puree. If you were giving her more of the whole food, you could be doing a boiled egg, cutting again a quarter or an eighth, cutting it into those kind of wedges or be making her an omelet with one egg and you literally just cut it into a slice. But I would only really be giving around about a half a slice. So something that would be almost the size of maybe like two centimeters long or so. That is then what I would be offering for her first day. The following day, I would give a slightly bigger portion of the same type of way that I've, I've offered it yesterday the day before and then the third day I would do a slightly bigger serve again so you've done a boiled egg that you've mashed into a puree I'd go half I mean a quarter half and then a whole egg and that's the way that I would be managing it okay amazing thank you for that and and how I mean how common are these allergies because my my husband and I don't have any allergies that we're aware of so is it something we really need to be fearful of or you know, is it actually quite common to, for your babies to have these different allergies? It's not very common for our babies to have these allergies. So there's a lot of fear out there about the allergens, but it's something that I wouldn't be kind of going, oh my gosh, today is going to be the day that there is going to be a reaction. But I am always still more cautious and say, rather go about it going slower than just loading them up with a huge serve of that particular type of allergen. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I think it's it's one of the things I've been most sort of surprised at becoming a mum. It's, you know, there's a lot of um, heated debate around how you choose to give birth and then it's whether you breastfeed. And now it's this. And this is probably the biggest one because yeah. 
it's how your baby's going to eat for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Some people are so, so strong in their opinion. And it can be just, yeah. it can be very confusing, but also a bit intimidating because you really don't know. Very much so. And you don't want yeah. to be the one, you know, I don't see many mums on Instagram that are like, listen, I'm really struggling with this. And, you know, I don't have the perfect like kitchen set up with the pancakes and the muffin. Like yeah. it's, re- it's really hard. And, and it's great to see those mums as well because you get lots of inspiration and, and tips and that's great. But yeah, for mums that are struggling, sometimes you can feel a bit like, am I the only one that's like, okay, what do I feed my baby today? Yeah, you know? <laughs> totally. Totally. So the way that I would always work it is if re-looking at what you are doing and then saying, okay, well, if I'm happy to eat this food, then my child can eat this food as well. And if you can't feed whatever you're eating to your child, then it's just about readjusting what you are doing. And so it's whatever you're making. It's also on purees. You don't need to go and make liters and liters and liters of butternut puree and of beetroot puree and all of these things. It's literally going and saying, today I'm making oats for myself for breakfast. So I'm going to make her some oats. And if she wants it more pureed, I'm just going to put it in a blender and blitz it up. But we essentially having the exact same thing. I haven't added more work for myself. I've just offered her. And then let's say for lunch, you were having a, you were making yourself a bowl of pasta. For her, we could be giving her that. If we have to puree, we puree it. But we wouldn't necessarily always be having to puree that food. So we look at what are we doing. And then how can we just adjust what we're making so that you're not spending hours in the kitchen, that you're not kind of going, I need to be prepped to make sure that there's food for her for this day and that day and that day and the next day. Mm. It's nobody has time for that. And then it also takes away the joy in everything. Yeah, completely. And this morning, actually, I, I like to have Weetabix in the morning. So for the first time this morning, I gave her Weetabix and I just mixed it with her formula and she really enjoyed it. And it felt like a bit of, bit of, an accomplishment because I was like we've had the same breakfast this is great you know um so I think things like that I think it it helps it not seem like such a huge mountain to climb if you can just break it down into what you're doing and a lot of my girlfriends batch cook on like a Saturday and so they put their purees away and I'm gonna start doing that because I think that will really help as well if you're busy you know at least you can just take a couple of different cubes you know that you've got something yeah veggies out of the freezer defrost them and then and so there's ways I think you can help yourself but I think it can be just really just a real minefield when you're first starting Mm. if you're not a sort of natural natural cook as well yeah um so yeah thank you for that and and if mums would like your help so do you do one-on-one consultations how does it work for anyone listening that thinks okay I need I need some one-on-one time with you how does it work so I do one-on-one consultations. I do consultations for that at Genesis Clinic. Um, or I've also got my own business called JV, JV Nutrition, where I would do one-on-ones. And then I also teach workshops. So if you're really trying to get a big overall view of what's going on, you can join one of the workshops as a starting point to kind of get, this is what my readiness sign is. These are the things that I need to have in place before I'm actually starting. So those are the ways that people can get in touch and get some more information. That is amazing. I wish I had done a workshop, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I still can. 
So you still can, yeah. Please, please <laughs> let us know. I'll put all your information in the show notes, and so people know awesome. where to find you. Um, and awesome. we'll keep following you and share whenever you're having your next one because I think awesome. just Thanks. like a breastfeeding workshop, like go to these things, invest in these yeah. things because mm. it really, really helps. Yeah. And well, that's the thing. We put so much into the pregnancy and breastfeeding and things, but the starting solids we try to do it by ourselves but ultimately it's actually the thing that sets our children up for the rest of their lives so yeah. i'm super passionate about getting it right oh, well thank you for all the info mm. you've given us today Pleasure. we're going to do a little quick fire round now cool um so what's your one piece of advice for first-time mummies my one piece of advice is be kind to yourself um really take it slow and yeah be kind know that there will be moments where if you just feel like having a cry sit down and have have a cry it's okay and another little piece of advice on that being kind is remember to take some time for yourself and i certainly found this when my daughter was born i'm actually a massive introvert love speaking to people in big groups and like teaching workshops and things but i really look after i need that that small space around me for to kind of recoup my energy and somebody told me this when i just had frankie they said you actually need to remove her because as much as you are just you and her by yourself you still aren't by yourself and regaining your energy so it's look at how you actually are recuperating your energy because i thought i was doing fine because i would take that time but babies take a lot from us and so it is getting that walk outside by yourself for that 15 minutes or something so yeah. being kind and looking where you recover yourself as well it is so true and the amount of times i'll think oh i'm gonna treat myself i'm gonna go for a walk but with baby and that's yeah. fine but you often forget to do things actually on your own like exactly. it, you just forget and when you do yeah. do them you feel so great and then that makes exactly. you feel better you've got better energy and you don't need to feel guilty about that I went for my first ladies night yeah. with a girlfriend in December and baby was with her dad and god it felt mm. good it just yeah. it felt amazing and yeah. you know do it when you're ready but it really does give you a little mm. a boost whatever it might be you know going to get your nails whatever done it whatever it be, is yeah. whatever it is yeah, yeah um, i'm what, all for it what are your top three essential items for first-time mums a baby carrier well for me top number one it's something i still use actually with my three-year-old when we go for our little adventures we go out to the mountains i still put her in her ergo baby on my back and off we go so baby carrier is essential then another thing that i really found you helpful was i got a bath cushion so it wasn't a baby bath that i had or a baby seat it was literally a little floater cushion that had beans all around it that she could lie in and it really helps not having to move around buckets of water or having to bend over. I would actually climb in the bath with her and she would float around on her cushion. So that for me was number two. And then number three, very random, the coconut oil. Coconut oil was the best thing. As a new mum, for baby, for myself, for everything, coconut oil seemed to kill everything at the time. <laughs> 
I love the smell as well. I'm obsessed with anything <laughs> yeah. coconut. Um, what's uh, what's one item that you thought you would use a lot as a first time mom, but didn't actually end up using that much or at all? Yeah, so this is um, a tricky one. I was quite a minimalist as as a mom. I didn't buy a lot of stuff at all before before my daughter was born. We didn't have a lot of space. She just had a little area within my husband's and my bedroom. So there wasn't a lot of space, but I was told to get a lot of muslins. And so I bought a lot of muslins and I ended up not actually using them at all. I was useless at swaddling her because she was never swaddled. And I only actually ended up using the muslins much, much later when she was over a year as a breastfeeding cover. I would tie them around my neck and then use that when I was out. But so for me, it was muslins. Thought I'd use loads. I actually remember saying to friends, what do you use them for? Because you all told me to get lots and I haven't used them. What do you do with them? So that for me was the thing. Yeah, my baby hated being swaddled. <laughs> um, and yeah. I, I had like multi-packs of them. But luckily I didn't go overboard on the big ones, like the swaddly ones. So yeah. I, they're just used to sort of like mop up, spit up and you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. That um, one. So I went overboard with on the, the big, big ones. ones. Yeah. <laughs> and they're beautiful. But if your baby doesn't like being swaddled, then no. yeah. Um, what's one thing nobody warned you about before becoming a mum? Day two. That, to be honest, is for me, it was one of the hardest days that I could go through, or, or rather I should say night two. Um, I teach hypnobirthing. I kind of figured I should know a lot of these things, but night two, I was at home. I kind of, we'd been discharged after 24 hours and just kind of when your baby realizes that, hello world, what is the space? It's a whole new environment that I'm in. I was that person Googling, going, why won't they stop crying? Why won't they do this? Why won't they do this? And everything was, they're just actually realizing that they've been born. So it's something that I really focus on now when I'm working with pregnant moms or talking to my friends. And I just say, no, that night too is when our babies wake up. And it will be a hard day, a hard night, but you'll get over it. So yeah, that for me was one of the hardest things. For me, it was night three because I stayed two, I stayed two nights in hospital because my insurance yeah. covered it. So we were going to go, but we were like, okay, we can stay in because our insurance yeah. is covering it. And the nurses are really helping. And it, I just, the hospitals here are beautiful, aren't they? They're like hotels. Yeah. So I was like, let's yeah, stay. Exactly. The next night we were at home and suddenly, you know, I've not slept the high of the birth. I'm starting to come off the high of the birth. Mm -hmm. My milk is coming in. My boobs are hurting. The emotions, yeah. the hormones are there. Baby suddenly is screaming. No one knows how to stop the baby screaming. Why? And I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay, this just got no, real. Oh, it's real. <laughs> And I did that thing as well. I'm Googling at four in the morning. What does a good latch look like? Um, sending videos to my girlfriend of breastfeeding in the middle of the night with a torch. You know, it's my husband yeah. snoring next to me. Um, just like, it's when, yeah, that mm. is either night two or night three. Yeah. Milk comes in and it's like, whoa. And no one really warns you. Nobody tells you. No. Nobody, and, you, and in that moment, you honestly think, what have I done? Like, yeah. am I ever going to sleep again? 
can yeah. I even do this? And and I remember just thinking, oh God, I'm failing. I'm rubbish at this. Yeah. Oh my God, this poor little baby. Like, oh, We've and it got was so much longer to go, and I'm already <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> but it does get better. It really it does, it get, does better. get better. So it does. Go with it. But I think people need to talk about that more because if I'd have had a bit more of a heads up, yeah. I think. My mum did warn me, you know, your milk's going to come in. You might feel a little bit wobbly. Mm. Then she'd warn, she'd warn me about that, but I didn't know that because I had done a breastfeeding workshop, and you know, and luckily yeah. I had a really good community of girls around me. A girlfriend dropped some nipple cream off the next day, got that lathered on. Suddenly that felt a bit better. Yeah. And, you know, I managed to pick myself up. But if you don't have that, especially now with you know a lot of people in lockdown still, yeah, it can be hard. So I wish people spoke about that more because it's and we can maybe do totally. a whole separate podcast on that because it's a really yeah topic. <laughs> what to expect? I agree. What's going to happen? um how you're yeah. gonna feel like all these things so yeah we will mm. definitely come back to that um yeah. what's your favorite thing about being a mum it's seeing the little character develop it's that's gonna be my my most favorite thing is really kind of just seeing that laughter and the character and the questions and my daughter's now three and just kind of her going through everything figuring out her language figuring out how to talk and now really seeing that character just evolve into a human and being able to have a conversation with her, that's, at this point in time, the best thing about being a mum. And finally, what does motherhood mean to you in three words? Oh, um, motherhood means to me, it's, it's something that's really hard to do. Um, in three words, it's hard, but it is super joyful and just you're learning so yeah learning joyful hard <laughs> yeah and again I don't think anyone truly can warn you about no. how hard it is because it's not even so much the the kind of the physical aspect of it you know the sleep this night no. it's more the emotional like you are constantly then worried about another human being yeah. And you're constantly questioning, am I doing the best job possible? Is she getting everything yeah. she needs? Can I be doing better? You know, and that that is hard, you know. That it's, mom guilt is real. <laughs> it really is. I never fully understood it before. I could appreciate yeah. it, but I could never really mm. fully understand. And now I'm like, like from the minute yeah. they put her in my arms, I'm like, okay, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jordana, thank you so much. I'm going to put all your information in the Absolute show notes. Pleasure. And please, for any first-time moms listening or expecting moms, please invest in some yeah. breastfeeding um, help and some weaning help. Get all the knowledge yes. before you actually get to that hurdle because knowledge is exactly happened. and I did it for my birth with my hypnobirthing and it paid off I just didn't do it for anything else <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I know it works if you put the time in it really it does. does pay off I yes. I got the birth I wanted but I didn't do it for anything else so it really does it, it, <laughs> it works and let me rephrase that you might not always get what you want but you're in a place of knowledge which gives you the mm. place of choice and and power so it might not end That's up looking how you think but you feel like you feel empowered because you've educated yourself that's the whole thing it's not about that it works out to be this picture perfect it's that 
it was something where I was respected. Everything about it, it was respected. I had the knowledge. And so that was the outcome. I understand what the outcome actually, why that outcome was versus it just being thrown at you. Exactly. Jordana, yeah. thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was a wonderful time. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. A massive thank you to Jordana for all her time and knowledge. This episode definitely helped me. You can find links to Jordana's social pages, website and contact details in the show notes below. You can also find links below to our social media accounts, including the Friday's Child Facebook community. This is a group I have created in the hope to share positive birth stories, along with parenting life hacks, tips and tricks, general advice and much more. And finally, I would be so grateful if you could show some love and please rate, review and subscribe to Friday's Child the Podcast to help us reach more wonderful mummers. Until next time, thank you for listening.